but apparently a lot of people still care about Revel Kids, which was kind of surprising when I was reading through the comments, especially when, when someone called me a commie for <laughs> for <laughs> I don't know why even. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't mind. It was kind of funny, and besides, I was born after the fall of USSR, so. <laughs> But I was still born in Czechoslovakia, I, so <laughs> at least something. Welcome to episode six of Plastic Posse Podcast. Yeehaw! Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> Sponsored by Goodman Models. As always, as you can hear, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Doug Smith and TJ Holler. How are you guys doing? Really, really good. Pretty good. TJ, you got your cat on your lap yet? No, I don't know where he was earlier. He ran off somewhere. Yeah, that's our good luck charm. Hopefully he comes back. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind our listeners to tune in and listen to the other scale modeling podcasts in our little group. I'm sure you're all aware of them, but just a reminder, we have On the Bench with the guys down in Australia, Plastic Model Mojo over in Kentucky, and Scale Model Podcast up in Canada. We're big fans of these shows and appreciate your support of them as well as us. Also, we'd really appreciate it if you take a few moments and leave our podcast a review on whichever podcast platform that you use, especially if you can give us a five-star rating. It really helps us to get the posse out to more listeners when you do that. On this episode, originally we had uh, kind of planned on doing an episode on our inspiration, and we're still going to do that, but we're going to kind of kick that down the road as I have a special announcement to make. We have a surprise for all of you out there. We are going to have an interview with a YouTuber that you are all familiar with. Uncle Nightshift is going to join us from Slovakia. It was a lot of fun uh, talking with him, and I think you're going to enjoy that interview very, very much. Doug, are we still doing the uh, Golden Sprue Awards? Is that still open? Absolutely. That goes through the end of the month. So if you want to participate in voting at the Golden Sprue Awards, head over to www.goldensprueawards.com. Make your voice heard. Voting is open for the rest of the month. We are also joined real quick by a friend of ours and the first guest we ever had on the show, that would be John Bonani, talking about another exciting event, Right Con with TJ. Hey everyone, this evening I'm joined by John Bonani and he is here to talk about an online model show that he has helped organize. John, tell us a little bit about it, please. Sure. Hey, thanks TJ for having us on to talk about the show. So RightCon is a show that is being held by the Wrightfield Scale Modelers. It's an IPMS chapter out of Dayton, Ohio. And originally the show was scheduled for back in April, but as we all know, something happened and it's continuing to happen. So it was rescheduled to November uh, as a physical kind of show. But as we know, you know, restrictions for, you know, social distancing and public gatherings, the show committee has decided to pull it on to the virtual world. So now it is all online. 
and I was very fortunate enough to be invited to be their head armor judge, so I'm helping support the show as much as I can. The online show is going to have seminars, vendors, door prizes, and an actual contest that will follow IPMS judging rules. So do you have to be an IPMS member or a member of the chapter, or how does it work? Can, can anyone just kind of show up or join or submit a model? Yes, great question. So you do not need to be an IPMS member to join and participate in the show. There are two categories. There's general admission and then also entering within the contest. And the contest, as I mentioned, follows IPMS rules. There's two, I guess, uh, tiers for the contest. There's $10 and $15. The $15, if you win, will get you an award that will be mailed to you. And you'll actually have a physical award, which is uh, looks like a military challenge coin. So I would encourage everyone, if you're going to enter in the contest, go at the $15 level. So if you win, you actually get some hardware you can put on your shelf. Since it's all virtual you know, and online, if anyone's been to an IPMS show, judging models is really important. And it's kind of like the whole point. How are you guys going to handle that given that it's online and maybe not everyone has access to high quality cameras, et cetera? The committee has done a great job of laying out kind of the photo requirements for the contest. Uh, in terms of quality, you know, uh, most most cell phones today are, are good enough. The most important thing is having a very well-lit area and a solid background. So, you know, a couple pieces of printer paper, some desktop lamps, and you're good to go. What I would ask the participants is to read the rules because they actually ask you to photograph your model in a certain way. So, you know, your left side, your right side, your front and back some oblique angles, and then over top. And this allows the judges to see every aspect of the model. Now, I will also caveat, you know, photographs. People are probably saying, well, you know, it's a Photoshop contest or, you know, you can't see everything in photographs. And that's true. And, you know, certain things can't be judged. So a track alignment, for that matter, you know, the parallax of a camera is going to throw off the optical illusions. But what's important is, you know, some of these photos can show basic flaws if they're in the model. Floating road wheel, theme down the barrel, if there's any type of ejector pin marks or seams where they shouldn't be, those are the kind of things that would, could be found in a photograph. But I'd also like to illustrate, you know, it's from my perspective when I judge, I, I never start with the negatives, but pull out what has been done well with the model and evaluate on its own merit. Especially it's hard because it's online. The way I'll be running armor judging is very similar to an AMP style where each model kind of look on it on its own, we'll evaluate it, give it a score. And then once we get the top tiers of models, we can down select and then kind of compare them against each other and have an open discussion between the judging team, uh, which we feel is, you know, the most appropriate to be awarded. Oh, that's pretty cool. As an aside, uh, if anyone is listening that's concerned about maybe potentially hiding things with a camera, I can tell you from personal experience, you'll never find more things wrong with your model than when you take a good picture of it. I'm sure most modelers can agree to that. Like that's the number one way to find something wrong. So I think we'll be safe as far as that goes. So how do people join? Where do they go to sign up? That kind of thing. The contest is being held at a website, pretty straightforward, Rightcon, W-R-I-G-H-T-C-O-N.com. I believe it's been shared on the Facebook page. But what you'll do is you'll go there, you'll be greeted with a homepage, and it talks about vendors, sponsors, a volunteer to judge. But then there's also options for a virtual vendor room virtual model contest room, and then registration as well. And you want to click on that registration, and that'll walk you through the process on the PayPal, getting registered, and then as you enter models, it'll show you kind of an all-inclusive, you know, entryway. It's very similar to an IPMS show, actually. You'll have an option to enter a description of your model, give basic details about it at the highest level, scale, category, manufacturer, any details that you may have added. And then it gives you the uh, option to add photographs as well. So 
Chris, the show chairman, has done a fantastic job of writing the code actually for the email, or not the email, but the website itself. So mad kudos to to the show chairman for for heading that up. So I heard you mention that they're looking for volunteer judges. Is there any kind of criteria someone would need to volunteer to be a judge or is it kind of open to anybody? Yeah. So judging is open up to anyone. So what you'll do is you go onto the website, you'll click volunteer to judge. It'll take you to a sign up genius page where you can enter in your basic details and what type of genre you would like to judge. I'll be heading up the armor category. I would ask when I have that first engagement with the prospective judge, I'll ask basic questions like, have you ever judged before? And if they're like, no, I haven't, but I'm curious. Fantastic. I would actually ask anyone if you are curious about IPMS rules or judging in general, I would highly recommend participating. I've learned more during the judging process at shows than I ever have reading an article or sitting at the bench because you start to look at things differently in terms of you know, a model for the competition table. And I know that's not why we build models, but um, the competition can help you grow as a modeler and make sure you don't make simple mistakes. So any skill level is okay. Even if you're in a beginner, if you are a beginner, you'll be put on a team with experienced judges where you can learn and contribute. If you're an experienced team member, you know, you'll be, you know, heading up that team of three people, one of three, where you'll have a, you know, an active voice and be able to share your comments and concerns about models and, and also highlight what they've done well. Uh, so we can award them at the end of the day. I guess the most important question is, can you register now and start submitting photos now? And if you can, when is the last day that you can do that? And when does the actual judging take place? So the registration is currently open and registration will close on the 7th of November at midnight. Judging will take place for that week after the 7th of November because the actual show is between the 13th and 14th of November. Please get your entries in by the 7th. And then the goal is to have those entries judged by the 14th so the awards can be awarded at the end of the show. I'm really looking forward to it. Anyone that's listening, you know, if you're interested, please check it out. It's going to be very cool. I'm glad to see this kind of thing happening. Um, I know me personally, I love going to my local IPMS show. I've gone every year since I've been a member. Please go check it out. John, is there anything else you uh, want to add? Well, I got to call you out live on the podcast. Will you be an armor judge with me? Uh, sure. I will. All right. I like it. I like it. Sweet. Thank you so much, TJ. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. Uh, can you give us that website one more time? It is rightcon.com. So W R I G H T C O N right. Like the brothers, uh, first in flight and con as a C O N.com. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate it as always. And, uh, look forward to, uh, judging some armor with you. Awesome. Thanks TJ. Appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. So in other news, as you might have heard, we have launched the Ryfield Model T3485 group build with John Minani. Check us out on the Facebook page for more details, and you can also just search for the group Classic Posse Podcast RFM T3485 group build. I know it's a mouthful, but I'm sure you guys can figure it out. Doug, did we get any listener feedback? We got a bunch of listener feedback from Rick Baker, and we were going to read almost everything he had to say, but I think I think Rick has so much on his plate, we're actually talking to him about maybe doing a short interview with him. But Rick Baker is from Broomfield, Colorado, just north of Denver. He's through episode four, really enjoying the podcast and the subject matter. He's listened to the, all the episodes of the other podcasts, and he really, really likes them, and he likes that we have a slightly different approach, too. So we really, really appreciated his feedback. He's also into Star Wars, and he even sent us a top five. This is his top five wish list for Star Wars uh, Bandai kits, which uh, I'll go ahead and read to you. He wants the uh, Republic gunship uh, in 172nd scale, the Razor Crest, the Tidarium, a Sandcrawler, 
and a tie bomber all would be awesome awesome models to have we all agree with that and he left us with a go avs and if you don't know who that is it's the colorado avalanche that's the uh hockey team in denver so uh another another nhl shout out we love that and then we've got uh scott Pasichnik. i hope i got your name right scott i'm sorry if i didn't he runs a, he has a youtube channel called small soldier he really enjoys our show he likes our approach and he found us through On the Bench from Down Under. Jim Bates, he is a scale Canadian on YouTube. He's great. We really enjoy his show. He just dropped a new one a couple weeks ago, and we're probably coming up on episode 21 here for him pretty quick. So shout out to Jim. We really enjoy Jim's approach. He's a fun guy. So speaking of Scott Pasichnik, he gave us a hobby shop shout out. PM Hobbies in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Has a lot of plastic kits. The Meng, Tecom, Tamiya. ICM, mini art, etc. Lots of supplies at well. It's my go-to shop and the only decent one around. Well, other than my shop <laughs> that closed back in 2010. Sorry about that. Called oddly enough, it was Small Soldier. One other we got in the last in the last two weeks was Jim Porsche gave us the rare plane detective in Cathedral City, California. That's for Jeffrey Garrity, the owner. Fantastic selection of vintage, experienced model kit. So thanks again for that shout out, Joe. Cool. Thanks for that, Doug. In addition to the feedback Doug just mentioned, we also got a lot of really good feedback from some people about our last episode on mental health. And we just wanted to thank them for taking the time to reaching out to us and that we really appreciate it. Now, moving on, I'm really happy to introduce our next guest. Most of you guys probably know who he is, but he's a fantastic modeler. His name is Martin Kovacs and he runs Night Shift Models. So let's saddle up and listen into this uh, interview. Well, we are here today with a very special Plastic Posse podcast interview. Today, we have Martin Kovac, a.k.a. Uncle Night Shift, who's joining us from Slovakia. Martin, welcome to the show, and uh, we're so excited to get to talk to you. Good evening, gentlemen, and thank you for having me. As, uh, as always, I've got Doug and TJ with me here. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. <laughs> hey. All right. Well, well, Martin, just to get us kind of started, um, give us a little bit of background uh, about yourself. Uh, you know, how long have you been modeling? How did you get started uh, building models? You know, those kind of things. Yeah, like a background check. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't know, because I think I've been modeling pretty much since I can remember. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't so, you know, anything serious from the beginning, like for a lot of years i was just a kid playing with models not even painting them or anything and just kind of wanting to get them done asap and so I, I could just play with them and also hang the airplanes on my ceiling by strings all, and all of that and yeah it was kind of from the start i was just building anything i could get my hands on so airplanes uh battleships as well and then I kind of found these snap fit kits of, of cars from a Czech, Czech company. And they had like, you know, pre-colored 
plastic, so we didn't need to paint them. Also, not water slide decals, but regular stickers, steel axles and everything. So you could just put them together in half an hour and just play with them. And they also had interchangeable parts. So, yeah, I pretty much had their entire catalog. Yeah, and I've been building these until I was like 11 or 12. And then one of my classmates, who was also a modeler, he introduced me to armor models. And I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even know something like that existed. For some reason, I never thought about tanks as models. And yeah, I've been pretty much an armor modeler ever since. Like, okay, I, I tried different things as well, like submarines. I also tried sculpting, like sci-fi, fantasy, horror figurines, like big, you know, figurines, and which was kind of fun, but it kind of, you know, the novelty wore off after like, I don't know, four months. So back to armor models. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Kind of your core love is armor modeling for sure then. Yeah, like, I mean, I've tried, but I don't know. Armor just seems to be a lot of fun to me, even even though it's pretty much the same thing all over again, like the same techniques and same aftermarket, you know, same tools, everything. But what are you going to do, you know? I know that you've you've kind of said that you really love post-World War II kind of Russian armor subjects. Is that because of the color palette or is that just that's the, the vehicles you love? Is there a, a reason for that? Well, the color palette is basically just green, <laughs> nothing special there. Mostly, the you know, their shapes and the engineering that went into them, all the rough parts and manufacturing processes that kind of stuff. And I, I I just like, you know, big, heavy tanks. But that was something like, I used to enjoy them a lot. But nowadays, uh, you know, like, for example, I never was a big German armor fan. But now I'm sort of starting to quite enjoy them. They have nice camouflages and, you know, lots of different options, how you can paint and weather them and also lots and lots of you know different not modifications but you know setups you can present them in like uh, with stowage pretty you know you know what i mean so yeah yeah there's lots of different possibilities it's the most main most mainstream subject out there you know german armor but i'm starting to kind of see the point why that's the case <laughs> And, uh, you know, a tank that both uh, TJ and I are huge fans of is, are the Crusaders, British Crusaders. And your series on the Crusaders was really terrific on that 48 scale Tamiya kit. Thank you. Yeah, I noticed that while listening to your pre- previous podcast. So there was like the Tamiya 135th Crusader, which is Italy in disguise. And also, you you're you're looking forward to the new border model kit, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We cannot wait for that to come out. That that Italy kit is ancient. I think it's older than I am. <laughs> Might be like from the seventies or so. Yeah, it's it's definitely showing its age, as I talked about in that review. So. Uh-huh. 121,000 followers, man, that is awesome. How does a, a YouTuber like yourself uh, go from uh, starting out to over 120,000 followers? Tell us your secret. 
luck, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm not going to lay you off the hook that easy. I think it might have a little to, to do with more than just uh, luck. No, I'm, I mean, I'm serious. Uh, well, on one hand, I don't want to give out all secrets. So suddenly we, we have <laughs> we have like dozens of 100K modeling <laughs> channels out there. No, but but I I mean seriously, it was it was just luck, really, because well, I'm I'm not I'm not gonna lie. From the beginning, I talked about it already. I took it seriously, like because you know I'm the type of person if I if I'm gonna try something, I'm gonna give it my best. And this yeah. also meant uh, watching a few videos about how to, you know, make a YouTube channel, how to start a YouTube channel, how to grow it and stuff like that. I'm not sure if any of those advices I learned worked because, well, I mean, the channel, since I started it, it was like, it had a pretty steady growth from zero to about 2000 subscribers. And then, like I said, luck video which which i made as a filler content like almost no production production value the three or five chipping tricks for beginners it kind of just took off like yeah it, it 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 gained i think two hundred thousand views in like three weeks so oh my gosh wow like wow mine i i didn't know what was happening at first but then I was suddenly starting to realize, okay, this video is probably, you know, blowing up. Feels nice. Yeah, it was like it was like like this two more times. So the second time it was with again a filler video about shell impacts, and then which I really didn't expect, and I wish it 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 was some other video. It was the T ninety video which took off. Yeah, and and honestly, pretty much every channel on YouTube is is mostly about a few videos that are really popular, and the rest is sort of like you know mediocre in terms of the, of the performance, right? Yeah. So yeah, so pretty much. I I, I mean I, I'm not, I don't know I don't know for sure, but that's what people say, so I believe them. Yeah, let's let's turn to the fans because all three of us are big fans. I've already kind of talked about your your video and audio production just being just top notch. So that's kind of what I think. What do you think, TJ? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of really talented modelers on YouTube that make excellent videos, but I dare say I don't think any of them have the quality that you have. I, I don't know how you do that, but it is like. I don't know. It's like almost next level. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's a lot. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know because, for example, the video quality is something that's really kind of bothering me. Uh, it's been bothering me for a few months now. Like, I feel like I should buy a new camera and probably start uploading in, well, not 4K because that would take like forever to upload, but maybe 2K, you know? And also sometimes the colors in the video are just horrendous. I mean, wait, my computer just went into wow. sleep. Are you guys watching the same videos he's talking about? Because I don't I don't <laughs> think I am. <laughs> Doug, what do you think? We, we didn't get a chance to talk to you, but what do you think? Uh, what makes his videos kind of stand out? Subject matter. You, you talk about things that we all feel like we need to work on. We all see that that we need an, an improvement in some areas, and so we we turn to you in a lot of cases. 
also just the way you present yourself and the way you present your, your subject matter. Um, you focus really well on, on what you're working on close-ups, good crisp pictures that we can see what's happening. Um, you don't, you don't spend a lot of, and I don't want to, I'm not bashing other YouTubers, but a lot of times they'll spend a lot of time with them on themselves on camera yeah. talking about what they're going to do, but mm-hmm. they're not really, you don't see enough of the kid itself. And and that's the important part, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we see what's going on and then you explain it very, very well. You tell us, you know, the materials you're using and the, uh, the paints you're using and whatever, whatever weathering materials you might be using, it's all there. It's all out for us to see and see how it works as you do it. And that, that helps a ton. That makes it really fun to watch. Thank you. You had a good point there about other YouTubers using a lot of shots of themselves talking. And that's actually, that's actually something really cool, which I would like to do as well, but just, you know, with moderation, not too much. Well, in my case, it's because it was because lack of equip- equipment. Because I have a studio mic where I do voiceovers and the camera where I film everything without any commentary or anything. I was never able from the beginning to make like, you know, point the camera at me and start talking because the camera has has a really like probably the worst mic I've ever heard on my camera and setting it up with the studio mic and you know synchronizing the audio with with video it's kind of not really practical so that's the reason why I ne- I've never done it and also because as you know I'm not a native speaker so kind of live commentary was never really an option with me so I always need to have at least some guideline which I can read off and you know to stay focused and on on the subject matter Another element we haven't talked about is the entertainment, your self-deprecating style, you know, the way that you kind of have an easy conversation style is really, really good. And a lot of people kind of relate to that. And uh, your bloopers are fun too. So I think, you know, while people do want to tune in and look at a technique, I think they enjoy being entertained as well. I, I'm still getting comments from people like the, saying they're missing, they miss bloopers because I stopped including them a while ago because they were getting sort of forced. I mean, I, I wasn't making mistakes on purpose just for the sake of making them. Yeah, I just started making less mistakes as I'm as I'm narrating videos. Yeah, they had to go, and instead, I sometimes I just include myself laughing laughing at something in the video directly so you know trying to find you know a sweet balance between everything is always yeah. just about trying and you know a little bit of hit or miss you you, you can never expect what people are gonna enjoy i i wanted yeah, to I, I, I wanted to drop the intro because i don't like it anymore i always skip intros in every video so i didn't want to use it anymore as well people hated that that idea so yeah, the intro is gonna has to stay. Yeah, your intro's epic. I, I I like it anyway. Yeah, I heard uh, heard your interview that you did your with uh, John Bias, who was mm-hmm. our guest on in episode five. And the part that I really got a chuckle about was when uh, he asked you about pineapple on pizza. Apparently, you're not a very big fan. <laughs> Tell me who is. Is there anybody? <laughs> I will say that I like it on pizza. I don't buy pineapple on pizza, but if it's there, I'll eat it. I don't mind it. Oh, okay. 
I'm not offended. Like, I'm not offended not that a... somebody else doesn't like pineapple on pizza. I kind of get it. It doesn't make sense. But then I don't like vegetables on pizza either. So I don't like pineapples on anywhere on anything. Oh man! Even by themselves, definitely not on pizza. Why would you ruin something awesome? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the thing about pineapple, I wouldn't mind it either if. If you remove it, you can eat the pizza, but it's already contaminated with the, with, with the juices, so it's not edible even if you remove it. That pizza's just ruined at that point. Yeah. That's a good... It's true. That's true. I think well, I'm definitely on the, the same page. All right. Before I hand the ball off to TJ here, Martin, there was a little bit of talk in that video with John as well about maybe someday uncle night shift doing a warhammer tank or a, some kind of a science fiction subject what are the chances that we can see another project similar to like the tank ball that you did i'm glad you didn't ask for a lehman russ because everyone asks for a lehman russ for some reason <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean again i talked about it a few times I wouldn't mind, but I'm worried it's it's the viewers who would mind because the thing about armor modelers is that they really like the history aspect. And something something like Warhammer would be pretty much heresy in their eyes. So, you know, I'm see, I made a reference over there. <laughs> that was good. That was good. <laughs> I totally wouldn't mind. And the funny thing is I kind of despised the warhammer style in the in the past i just couldn't get over the fact how over stylized and unpractical they look until one one of my friends explained to me who's into warhammer that it's all on purpose like yes yeah it's it's very intentional there's a fraction i think it's the her heresy fraction who are really old school so no modern technology so that's why their tanks look like world war one tanks for example so yeah it kind of makes sense i have no problem with the with the design or the style and but you know at the same time it doesn't matter if it's a warhammer tank or i don't know some wooden blood elf tank or whatever it's still a tank, so we are going to weather it with the same techniques. Uh, yeah, it's it's not going to be any different if I do it compared to anyone else. It's still going to have a wash, oil dot filter, chipping, rust tones, whatever you know. So yeah. all the techniques you can use on armor models, you can use it in, in Warhammer as well. I mean, I I can speak from myself that I know I'm in the group of people that would love to see you do that, just because what you said is true. Like, yeah, it's the same same techniques. Mm -hmm. But as someone who is in both realms, like I, I armor model, but I also do Warhammer stuff. Mm -hmm. No one really doing Warhammer stuff does what you do, at least that I've seen. And, and that's probably where people want to see that because you're very talented, as I think we all can agree. And using that talent on something that doesn't usually get that level of care or you see that level of finish on because they're essentially toys. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, people put them down on a table and push them around. Yeah. I think that's kind of like, I know me personally, I would love to see that because I would love to see how you tackle something as ridiculous as anything in Warhammer 40,000. Cause it's literally all ridiculous. That's like you're saying it's designed that way. Yeah. And, and I, and I'm getting your point because if not, if no one is doing it, then obviously you have, no reference in the community like okay this guy did this it looks good i'm gonna do it as well 
it was kind of similar when I was learning uh, weathering techniques and everything. And I had Adam Wilder as someone to look up to. Again, like for example, when I learned about tanks being painted in oxide primer color, that was something new to me. And, but on one hand, I wanted to give it a try. But on the other hand, no one did it before. So there was no you know, reference or any other yeah, model precedent. to, to yeah. just check out how it's going to look, if it's worth the time and, and effort or how to do it, which techniques to use. Because on one hand, I understand it's easy to say it's the same techniques, but the colors might be different. The colors used might right. be different. So The color palette of a Warhammer yeah. um, subject is what I would really like to see you do because Warhammer subjects are basically any color of the rainbow where armor subjects tend to be earth tones. You know, they're mm-hmm. either greens or tans or yeah. or rust tones. Scott, I think you just told me that I do Warhammer wrong because... <laughs> Everything I do for Warhammer is in is in Earth tones. Except for TJ, he's the OD guy. He's the OD Warhammer guy. Well, I I would like to say, you know, you you brought up your um, video on chipping. Uh-huh. Your was a five techniques on chipping. Uh-huh. I'm in a lot of Warhammer related hobbying groups on Facebook, and that video still makes the rounds probably once a week at uh-huh. least. Someone will post, "Oh, how do you weather a Space Marine tank?" and someone well, but oh, you should watch this video. This guy is amazing. Check out what he does. And I think that probably uh, that's not really so much a question, but a, a statement that that video is fantastic. And I think it's 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 making a lot of people that aren't necessarily thinking about weathering their kits to maybe start thinking about weathering their kits, which I appreciate. You know, as a traditional modeler that also does gaming modeling and see this is this is the reason why anyone shouldn't go to me asking for advice on how to make a on how to start and run a youtube channel because every youtuber who is who has a little bit of common sense you know what he would do see that video is popular do more milk it until it runs dry right not my case because it's not fun doing it just for the views Uh. The 121,000 subscribers that you have just uh, emailed in and said, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Scott had, had uh, we had kind of talked about some questions to ask. I don't think, Scott, if you got to it or not, but you've mentioned a lot of, in a lot of uh, videos that you don't like to airbrush and that mm-hmm. you don't usually show it in your videos. Is there any really specific reason? Because I mean, as a viewer, what little bit of airbrushing I've seen, you know, you'll do in the videos because you, you're right. You don't focus on a lot. It seems like you got it pretty much under control. Well, yeah, there is a legit reason. A couple of actually. First off, it's loud. The compressor is always running. I can't hear anything. And I like to listen to podcasts and true crime and whatnot while I'm modeling. I can't enjoy my podcasts while I'm airbrushing. I don't like wearing headphones because my ears will start to hurt after a while. And the second, it smells really pretty much the worst smell on, on the planet after pineapple pizza, you know? So, <laughs> so yeah, that's that's why I don't like it. I, I just, I always, I want to get it out of the way as soon as possible so I can, you know, peacefully, quietly play with paintbrushes and all that kind of stuff. You know, I'd, I'd never really considered that. That's an interesting point. I actually use uh, bottled CO2 
mm-hmm. for my airbrushing for that reason. I don't I don't like the noise either. And is is the air pressure like consistent from the CO2 canister? Because I, I used them in the past when I was a kid, like my first airbrush when I was, I think, 13 or 14 years old, I bought the starter uh, airbrush from Revel with their yeah. CO2 canisters. And I remember they kind of... When they were going okay for a few minutes, then something bubbled inside of them. They turned really cold and suddenly no pressure. And you had to leave them for, I don't know, three hours until they sort of recovered or whatever. Yeah, these aren't like little tiny cans. Like those are those are awful. I agree with you. These are like uh, bottles like you get at a welding supply store. Oh, it's a, right. a okay. 20, 20 pound supply. And a bottle, you know, I, I refill it about every 12 to 18 months. Oh, um, you have yeah. to go exchange it for another one. So, you know, mm-hmm. it lasts a long, long time. And it's got a regulator on it for my airbrush that's mm-hmm. just like a regulator on a compressor. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's totally understandable. And actually, that's something worth thinking about, you know. I, I, ha- I, ha- I had a friend who didn't have, you know, your typical mainstream uh, modeling compressor. But he instead bought the regular garden compressor, and he was li- living in a flat. So, oh dear! <laughs> he turned he turned it on in the morning. The whole apartment building was, you know, thinking what's happening. The whole building is falling apart. <laughs> and then he could work, you know, peacefully in in silence for the rest of the day. And that's actually something when people are. You know, like, I would like to start airbrushing, but I don't want to spend the money. The compressor is always at least 100 euros. That's actually a viable option. Like, if anyone lives in a house or something, and they have this huge garden compressor, and the regulator has the option, you know, to plug in the small airbrush, that might be the way to go for many people. I've done it with uh, nitrogen, Mm -hmm. which is the same thing. I mean, it's the same type of bottle. Mm -hmm. So I had a question for you. I know we've been talking about modeling and all that stuff a lot, but this is kind of away from that. What do you what do you do when you're not modeling or making videos? Like, um, I think I remember you mentioned maybe you you mountain bike yep. or motorbike or mountain or bike, whatever. Yeah, and that's pretty much my whole life: modeling and mountain biking, and sleeping for a few hours every day. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of um, what kind of mountain bike do you have? Oh, I'm changing. What, what I'm brand? changing them all the time. Uh, I'm the type of biker oh, okay. who changes his bike every year, like annually. <laughs> and I just recently bought a new one from Specialized, which is a, an American brand. I always had more than one, so I had my uh, an enduro bike, which is like a universal do-it-all bike. Then a downhill right. bike because I have two bike parks uh, near where I live, so a dedicated bike for just going. You know, downhill, not not not. It's not meant to pe- to be pedaled, and I also have a fat bike, which is like with these massive tractor tires, uh, for when it's when it snows, or it's also good for soft terrain like sand. Yeah, now I just now I'm just selling my two previous bikes, so I can have one do it all bike, which is the new one from Specialized. It's the new Specialized Enduro. If anyone out there is mountain biking as well. Yeah, so I uh, personally just really just started within the last couple of months okay. uh, mountain uh-huh. biking. I really enjoy it. I think it's that's pretty much the only other than work and build models. That's really one of the only other things I do too. <laughs> um, even though I'm not very good at it and I haven't been doing it very long, it's ridiculously fun. I didn't realize what I've been missing my whole life. Exactly. 
<laughs> and which bike do you have? I have a Trek, uh, Roscoe 7. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I had the Trek before. Well, I still have it because I'm, I still didn't sell it. I have the Trek Session downhill bike. A kind oh, of cool. custom built. Changed pretty much everything on it. And now I'm just selling it for a ridiculously small price because downhill bikes are kind of a small market. So you don't have many potential buyers nowadays. So, But Trek, Trek is, a, is a very good brand. I I really like them. My dad also, when because my dad got me into mountain biking and his first bike was also a Trek Remedy, the, the full suspension version. All right. So it's kind of switching back to modeling now. I just no. wanted to ask you that. <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk about bikes. Oh, I mean, no, we can no, no, continue no, no, to talk no, about no, bikes. No, no, it's okay. Let's let's be professional for a minute. Okay. <laughs> Making mo- videos aside, if if you walk into a store or you look at your shelf, what what makes you want to select the next kit to build? What do you look for in a, in a model kit that makes you want to build it? Kind of hard to answer with one short answer because there are so many variables nowadays for me. It, it wasn't. It was easier in the past, but obviously the shape of it, how it looks. If it's big, I like big tanks for some reason. I don't know why. Small PP or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and mainly the building and painting potential. You know that's pro. I think that's the most important part because you can have the most most badass looking vehicle on the planet and if it's just some expo prototype or whatever I mean sure you can build it however you like it's your model whatever makes you happy but if you want to you know give it that extra value like okay this this actually could happen or it actually looked like this you know, you know what I'm trying to say. It's it's a it, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a little bit more complicated than a lot of people. When I who talked to me, had the same issue. Like they sent me an email. Look, Martin, I bought this T62 from Iraq with Iraq kit and everything with these armor blocks, and it looks really cool. Yeah, did you search any references? No, I didn't yet. Then suddenly, well, Martin, bad news. No good. There are no interesting subjects. You know, no no good photos. What am I gonna do? Well, get rid of it. Sell it. Buy something more interesting. Buy a regular T sixty two, which served like all around the world. You know what I'm saying? So it's uh, yeah. Uh, Don't it's, back it, yourself into a corner. And yeah. but but now it's also about thinking what people might enjoy. For example, the Crusader. You can you know look up Facebook or modeling forums or competitions, whatever, you're going to see that British armor doesn't get as much love as it deserves. I didn't yeah, care. And I, I, and I I pretty much, I still don't care because the first priority is to have fun, but it also showed on the video uh, performance on the Crusader series. Like these videos weren't as popular as the others. It's a kind of tricky situation because if you keep uh, putting out videos which don't do really well, like like the new video is always worse than the previous one. I mean, I'm no YouTube veteran or something, but it feels to me like that's the best way to, you know, bury your channel, like let it die. So that's something I really wouldn't be happy if, if that happened. So it's also kind of about... Uh, finding what people might enjoy because 
then what's the point, you know, in making videos if no one cares? Well, not not really no one, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> not the majority of yeah. people. Yeah. I guess your your progress or process would be to do you find a reference photo or a handful of reference photos and then you decide, okay, this is kind of how I want to take this build. Like you, do you, you really like plan through? Cause yeah. I know me personally, I, I don't do any of that. Huh? <laughs> I kind of fly by the seat of my pants <laughs> um, half the time. Sometimes I, I'll plan something out. I think I did a Sherman that I actually sat down and planned before I started building it, but almost everything else, I just kind of make it up as I go. Well, that's the best way to enjoy a model. Because references, and the more you have them, the less fun you're going to have, usually. And, <laughs> and yeah, sometimes you're just randomly seeing a photo that's really interesting. And sometimes you just, I get interested in some new kit. Like, for example, when I saw the new Panzer III from TACOM, I started looking up some reference photos. Didn't find too many, unfortunately but I would really love to build it. And then there are the other situations, like, for example, again, the Crusader. Um, I was so hyped about building British armor then that I dug up this reference photo of a Valentine Mark IX uh, Land Lease, one from Russia, which is totally yeah. mangled. And I wanted to build it for the longest time. And I thought, okay, now I have, I'm, I'm happy enough to have the option you know, to do it properly. So I bought the kit. So I bought the Tamiya kit, which is Mark III and IV. The only difference was the engine, so not no way to see from the outside. And I also so also um, photo etched fenders and details from Voyager. And because the one that I wanted to build is Mark IX, I bought also the Bronco kit for the Mark IX. So uh, my intention was to, you know, Frankenstein them together. So use the turret from the Bronco kit on the Tam on the Tamiya hull because it's kind of risky buying photo edge for a kit it's not designed for. You know, so but then right. as I started seeing the performance of those Crusader videos, I uh thought twice about if I should build the Valentine <laughs> anytime soon. Well, I know, I mean speaking personally, I would lo love to see you do that because uh, I can't remember if I mentioned in the last episode or, or if you've heard me say it in a couple of episodes of ours you've listened to. I freaking love British armor. It's yep. one of my favorites. It's like right under there with, I mean, I like American armor too, but I love, I don't know what it is about British armor. World War One, and World War Two, and even current British armor. It's, I don't know, it's just kind of, it's kind of different. But no, I, I mean, I understand why you wouldn't want to do that uh, for your video. One day, definitely, for sure. When I think, well, I'm going to be crossing my fingers. Like when I think when there are too many views on the channel and I need to lower them a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How, how do you feel about the T3485? Eh, you know, as much as I'm a Russian armor fan, a T34, especially the 85 version, is something I never was really passionate about. But I, ha I have the Academy kit in, the, in my stash with the bit spring armor. No aftermarket so far. Yeah, a lot of people ask for a T thirty four eighty five, and I think I think that would be pretty cool. Like build it the most mainstream way, so Berlin stripes and everything. You know, nothing special. But there are just so many you know other interesting models out there, and it takes so long to build one, and that's kind of also 
important why why the subject selection is so important because you're going to invest so much time into it and the worst thing that can happen is to have a full shelf of shelf queens you know it's a, it, it's a it's a vicious cycle then i suspect if you did one with the bedspring armor on it it'd be pretty it'd be pretty popular that's a really a well-known tank, especially yeah. with those Berlin stripes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also wanted to mention the plastic posse has along it in conjunction with John Bonani. We're doing a group build that we just barely started on the new Ryefield models T thirty four eighty five, and uh, mm-hmm. we'd love to welcome you to join that. It's open ended, so there's no there's no time uh, that it has to be done by. But if you decided you wanted to do one, you know, for your show, maybe you could get a twofer. You could be in the group build and do that too. Well, if if, if you're w- willing to wait like two or three years, then okay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's open ended. It's open. There are no dates on this one. So, this is something that um, Scott has talked about throwing a kid away when you can't go any yep. further. I've never, I've never done it. I've come close. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott's done it. Uh, Doug, Doug, have you thrown a like bin to kit as well? I boxed him back up and stuck him back on the shelf and never touched him again. That's close. That's, that's pretty, pretty much that's the same pretty thing, close. right? With no intention of ever building it. They become paint mules after a while. That's a good idea. Yeah. So I, my question is, is that some, does that happen to you? Yep. Can, do, have you gotten to the point on a kit where you just can't go any further in it? goes into the trash sure. or do you power through no now i kind of can't afford to do something like that again uh subject selection why it's so important and everything also planning ahead yeah i did it several times in the past and i don't know if it was once or twice it was actually a very well built model with aftermarket and everything and just i failed with the paint and there was no way of stripping the paint down without without damaging the fragile parts. And you know, it's kind of a that's the worst feeling for a modeler when you're stripping down the paint. Like that's the ultimate failure, and it's never very encouraging. So I I tried stripping the paint down. The model started falling apart, and I had just no energy, you know, or motivation to power through and get it back together so it just went into the trash and and it happened a few times with other models with there was like nothing wrong with them i just you know didn't feel like ever finishing them and i tried to sell them sell them for the price of the kit no one was interested so i threw them away yeah there comes a time with some of these projects where i just feel like you're just not going to have any more fun or enjoyment yep. by moving forward with the project. And when you've got a bunch on your shelf that you're excited about, sometimes it's okay to take a step back and say, okay, well, I learned this and this and this exactly. time to move on. Exactly. Yeah. When you're not enjoying it anymore, that means that particular model model is not fulfilling its purpose anymore. So it's it, it overstayed its welcome. Um, I find that sometimes my kits get get binned or reboxed because I get going on something I think I'm excited about. And then I realize the subject matter just doesn't interest me that much. And I look at the shelf and I think, well, you know, that looks like that would be fun to build. So I box the one I'm not enjoying up and I put it up and I pull out something else. That's how we get so many models started that we don't finish. Yeah, but again, 
that's a slippery slope and when it becomes a routine then something is not really you know right when you're constantly opening new boxes and not finishing anything right i've actually been on that uh making an effort lately to finish mm-hmm. some kits before i start something else yeah and that's a good, that's a very good habit to always get something done how many projects do you typically have going at a time one, one at a time one. or yep. do you have a couple no, one. Like uh, you're, so you're a single. Yeah, like I already have so little time because it takes you know a lot of time to to even produce one video. So there's no chance I would be able to build something else aside. I was gonna ask. You know, I know that that your builds are all done for your YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. But is has there been any kit that you built that you enjoyed so much that if you were just going to build something for the fun of it, that you'd go back to and rebuild? Has there been something that good for you? Yeah, the Mark IV from Tamiya, that's a really enjoyable kit. KV-1 from Trumpeter, basically I've I've built several of them. By now I could just build another one without even looking at the instructions. Yeah, that would be something I'd enjoy. I mean, I I, I don't even care for the new kits from Rifled Models or Tamiya. I'd, I'd probably I'd just go for the old uh, Trumpeter one again. Those Trumpeter KV kits are great. Is there a particular one you like do you like the uh, ekonomi or the heavyweight turret or the lightweight turret which one do you like the best i think the cast turret i i i've never seen i've never spotted the difference between the lightweight and heavy one at least i can spot the difference between a simplified uh, welded turret and the regular one uh, but yeah. these cast turrets i don't really see a difference so yeah these cast ones these are really fun they look pretty cool and also the kv2 either the early turret the big turret or the production turret these also look pretty cool that's yeah, a mean looking tank yeah but again a problem uh the weathering and painting potential with them is quite limited they can be what green uh, and, well, KV2 <laughs> basically just green if you're not building a captured vehicle like German in Panzer Grey and Winter Camo. With KV1s, yeah, the selection, the options are more. But again, you know, when you're building a KV1 from 1941, it's just going to be dusty and that's pretty much it. Yeah. It would be like one of those once in a lifetime builds if I ever decided to build it again because any. Other model of a KV-1 would be basically the same. But they're really fun. The Trumpeter ones, they, they're they not perfect, but they are very decent for the price. They're really great. Way, way ahead of their time, I think. True, yeah. The Tamiya kit is, I, I think where, you know, where it's a little bit better than that series is the texture. You know, the, mm-hmm. the cast texture, the plasma cutting marks, you know, things like that. But as as far as the overall shape and the finished product, I think they, I think they're pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, textures and everything—that's something you can easily do by yourself. So yeah, that's actually something I never really cared about in model kits, like texture. Like this model is amazing because it has nice texture. Well, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna rework it anyway. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, is, is there anything that you haven't seen a kit of that you would love to have a kit of? I don't know. I feel like nowadays we have pretty much everything and those few odd models that we don't have, we're going to have them soon. So it's 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 a, it's a really nice time to live in you know, with all these options on the market. It's just I can't even think about anything that's not out there already. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's funny that you say that because if you go on the internet and you spend any time in any kind of forum or social media platform where they talk about modeling, mm-hmm. there will be a chorus of people claiming that modeling is dead. It's not like it used to be. Blah blah, so on and Obviously so on. Obviously, it's not as it used to be. It's always changing. right. I think the argument can easily be made that you're right. It's not like it used to be. It's better now. Yeah. There's more stuff available. There's more methods that have permeated through the community. And there's people like you making fantastic videos to help teach people that want to learn or, you know, want to get better. I just don't buy the fact that the hobby is dying or modeling is going away when, you know, you've got what over a hundred thousand subscribers on YouTube and any vehicle you can think of probably has a plastic model kit made. You know, not only that, because modeling videos, a lot of viewers uh, are not even modelers. It's just people who are interested in seeing that. It's the same like I, for example, like to watch restoration videos on YouTube, but I don't do any restorations on my own. I just like watching the process. The better argument is if the hobby is dying, why there are so many new model companies sprouting out every year, you know? Yeah, Dragon Dragon stepped back, but they've been replaced by Tacom, by by Mang, by Ryfield models, by Border models, by, you know, um, Rich models. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So if these companies are not some, I don't know, Asian mafia money laundries or something, <laughs> then the hobby definitely isn't dying. Oh man, I never thought of it like that. Maybe they are. Do you have a, a favorite uh, model uh, manufacturer? Hmm. I don't know, man. If I'd say Tacom, it wouldn't it wouldn't be true. But the truth is, if I see a new model from Tacom, it usually makes me really excited, no matter what it is. Because, you know, one thing is quality and the pure enjoyment when you're, you know, using their products or building the model. The other thing is the subject selection. If I were going with the subject selection, it might be Trumpeter, actually, because they're putting out so many of these Cold War Russian subjects. What What about you guys? What are your favorite brands? Or one, if you can pick one brand. I know if I could pick one brand, it might be... Oh, it's a toss-up between Tacom and even just the classic Tamiya. I love Tacom models. Some some of the first I haven't been modeling very long, only like for the last eight years or so, and, and only building tanks really for the last couple of years. So my first kind of like four way four A into tanks, the first tank I actually built was a Tacom Whippet, which is still one of my I would build another one immediately. So that kind of your first one's always your favorite sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I've snatched up almost models from across their line. They're modern stuff and they're, they're older, you know, World War One stuff. That'd probably be mine. It gun to my head, I'm going to say Tacom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as far as armor kits, I'm a Tamiya guy. And it's it, the thing that I'm going to talk about is plastic quality. It's really underrated by modelers. If your plastic is too soft or if your plastic is too hard, you're going to have a tough time when you're building it and if it's kind of in between and inconsistent um you're going to get frustrated with it too and to me is flawless in that area every time and um their their kits 
can be a little bit simplified, but uh, just the engineering and the plastic quality, um, you know, if you're going to crack open a new Tamiya kit, it's going to it's going to be a fun experience to put it together. That's true. Basically, Tamiya is the one, probably the, the only brand when you even when you just open the box and look at the contents, it just puts a smile on your face. I'm going to have to go with and this is this is because we can't go an entire episode without mentioning Star Wars, especially Bandai Star Wars. And that's what I've been building. The Bandai Star Wars stuff just is mind-blowing how how well-engineered it is, how great um, it goes together, and how simple it is for anybody to build, but for somebody with some experience to make excellent, to make really, really good. So I'll go with Bandai. And, and even their Gundam stuff, which I'm just starting to learn about, is really cool. Um, if you're talking uh, more traditional modeling, I love uh, Tamiya's aircraft uh, line, especially their uh, their newer tooled 32nd scale line that they've done. Just those are excellent kits. Plenty of detail, nice crisp panel lines and things like that. Love that stuff. I would really love to see Martin's take on a Slave One. Yes. What's that? The uh, ship that Boba Fett uh, had in Star Wars. Are you oh, familiar okay. with that subject? Lots and lots of of stripped and distressed uh, paint on it, uh, layers and layers of it um, all around the uh, the vehicle. Mm-hmm. It would be it would be awesome to see your take on the weathering and distressing of the finish of that craft. Might be interesting, but again, heresy. But I <laughs> <laughs> I've never been really into Star Wars. We all have our flaws. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, like no one's perfect, right? <laughs> right. Is there is there a subject like non-armor? Is there something that inspires you, like that gets you excited that isn't modeling or mountain biking, but is like, are there movies or shows that, that kind of get you intrigued and maybe wanting to build stuff that you haven't done before? I don't think so. Um, there are certain movies that kind of get me inspired, you know, to pick up the brushes or exacto knives and everything. Like, for example, Saving Private Ryan. That's always a pleasant watch. Obviously, the extended version. But not nothing specific about that movie like, that I would like to recreate or something. For example, Fury, even despite all the criticism, it they kind of captured the atmosphere perfectly. When I was building the Sherman... I've made a point to watch the movie to get inspired. I ended up not watching it. I just kept building and painting. If there's one movie which is not about war or anything that inspired me, it was the new Mad Max movie, which really influenced me when I was building the T-95, the hypothetical T-95 uh, from U.S. Marines. Where when I put the spikes on, on the tank, that was <laughs> that was, that that was, was awesome. inspired by Mad Max. That's a great movie. That like great that movie. one a lot. So it, yeah, and pretty much like John said in 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 his episode, nature nature is a great source of, of inspiration. Even simple stuff like taking a walk in the winter, uh, seeing the contrast between the muddy road and the snow, it. it can be at least for me it's it can be inspirational like i i take out my phone take pictures save them for later and not use them ever again but it's a it's a it's a nice feeling (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know i I was i was gonna ask if you um 
if you see stuff, do you take pictures of it? Because I've found myself doing that because what I do for work, I'm a, a, around equipment a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And then also um, in older buildings with old stuff in it. And that's like rusted and, and falling apart sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'll, if I can, because some places I work on, I'm not allowed to have a phone. I'll get my phone. And I'm like, oh, that that pipe right there looks really cool because it's clearly 40 years old and, and rusting out. I'm going to take a picture of it because you, you never know. I might need to have a good reference of something really rusty and corroded one day. I tried it once with construction equipment, some bulldozer or something uh, in a construction site. I was taking pictures of the running gear and suddenly a guard came out of the of his shack or how to call it started yelling at me like what what am i doing don't mind me sir i'm just taking pictures get out of here what are you doing i said i'm just taking pictures not not, nothing nothing you know nothing nothing wrong why why are you taking pictures uh because i'm i i'm saving them as my personal reference why because i'm a modeler why i don't know (laughs) get out well um let's talk about weathering and sort of your your weathering philosophy um, get into a little bit more than just how cool it looks. But, you know, I think a lot of times when a lot of our listeners are kind of newer to weathering and when they hear weathering, I think everybody thinks mud and dirt, you know, and that's kind Mm -hmm. of all, but there's so much more to it. You know, there's, there's shadows and highlights, there's, you know, distressing, there's different textures, you know, all those different kinds of things. Where do you kind of start? Like when you look at a kit, is it all sort of based on a reference or do you do you start, so, sort of develop a mental plan in your mind on where where you want things to go? You know, kind of what's your process for, for the, developing a weathering vision for a, a project? First off, it's a kind of blurry field. I think not only for me, but for many people, because like you said, many, many modelers think weathering is just dust, mud, and just these nature effects on, on, on vehicles. If we really want to get deep into this philosophy, for example, Adam Wilder, who definitely knows his stuff, he also calls weathering just everything that's, that comes after chipping. So pre-dusting, rain marks, dust dry mud, damp mud, oil stains, and everything. So for Adam Wilder, that's weathering. And everything before, those are just, I don't know, painting techniques? I don't know. He never specified in his books or when I talked to him. And for example, on the other hand, Mike Rinaldi, when he describes a painting of winter whitewash, whitewash camo, he mentions that with this type of finish, the boundaries between uh, base coating and weathering are kind of melting together because you're kind of painting and weathering the model at the same time with a winter, winter whitewash. And I'd say it's similar with the distressing method because you're basically creating a weathered or faded surface with your airbrush during the base mm-hmm. coating stage. You know, I mean... If we're going to be real, it doesn't really matter, you know, where weathering starts and where it ends and how to call all the other techniques. Of course, it might be a language barrier because, for example, here we don't say weathering, so we don't translate weathering in our language. So, like, 
you know, effects of the weather and outside elements, we use the word patina, which is also used in English, but uh, in a sort of different field, like antiques. So yeah, it's kind of different, but here we sort of call everything that comes after you put the uh, varnish layer on the model, everything after that is patina here in Slovakia. So I think in the end, it doesn't really matter, but what I think matters is the order of techniques. I know people are always raving about layers, like layers this, layers that. How awesome are these layers? Well, obviously you can't create every effect with, with one paint or in one session, you know, like melting paints together. Obviously it needs to be done in layers. The, the most important thing is deciding in which order to apply all these different weathering or just painting techniques. And even that is a little tricky because even though when someone asks, you know, for for this sort of general like bullet points, like where to start and what technique to use as the last one, it can vary depending on the subject. Usually filters are the very first thing. And many people think filters are something that needs to be applied it doesn't if if you are super happy with your you know you know base coat why would you uh, change it with filters there's no need for that then it gets it gets blurry and kind of tricky because for the longest time i thought the order was filters oil dots pin wash then fake shadows and highlights or ambient occlusion or whatever but turns out actually it might be a better idea to start with pin washes if you don't need to use filters, which always should go first. And then when you leave them to dry, then continue with oil dots. The model actually looks a lot better if you change the order order of these techniques. Then obviously highlights and shadows, if you if that's something you like on your model, it's not mandatory in any, in any way. Then of course it's chipping. On one hand, I believe everyone should, should build as they like, you know, do what what makes them happy. But on the other hand, I think a big mistake is to base coat the model, finish the ca- finish the camo and decals and everything, and then paint all the details and then seal it with a layer of varnish. I think that's a big no-no because on one hand, all the different details have their unique textures. And by textures, I mean for example, wooden handle is usually matte. Also, rubber tires are matte. Uh, steel steel is matte. Also, slightly, you know, it has that metallic sheen. Periscopes, the glass parts are glossy. And if you take care of all of this in the beginning and then seal it with a layer of varnish, you have ruined all these unique textures, which make the model look more detailed and more authentic. But also... All these details are just going to get in your way because there are techniques like which are quite messy. Like, for example, oil dot blending. The precision is not really the number one concern when you're blending oils. It's more about, you know, blending them smoothly and everything. And obviously, oil paints which are going to work with the base coat are not going to work on these details, like, for example, on dark gray rubber parts. And also, then there's speckling, uh, sponge chipping. If you like to use sponge, you're suddenly going to put 
uh, these chips on details where they have you know no business being so yeah after these first I, I, li- I like to call them wet techniques because usually you're going to use a lot of enamel thinner so the model is always soaking wet so after these then there's chipping so first layer of light chips but again this can be done in multiple steps uh, sponge speckling with oils then brush chipping, like connecting all these random chips into some more appealing shapes. Then the dark steel chipping. This also can vary depending on the subject. You can have aluminum chipping or you can decide to use uh, oxide red color for chipping. And then yeah. rust stones. Again, not mandatory. It's, I can also understand why not everyone is the biggest fan of using rust on armor models, but I just think it looks really cool and makes it look more authentic, even if it might not be totally realistic. And then when you're done with this, you can paint all the details because everything that comes after that affects everything. So because then there's dust, mud, and all these details get weathered the same way, like the rest of the tank. And also there are streaking effects, which are... A lot of people, well, not not a lot of people use them. And I can kind of see why, because it's not the easiest thing to blend a single streak in a really nice way. Because with streaking, you kind of need to blend each streak from both sides, not just one brush stroke up and down, or rather from top to bottom, but from both sides to get a nice, thin, yeah. and well-defined streak. And again, this can be done... Whenever, like once on the Crusader, I did it along with the pin wash. Then, for example, again, Adam Walder, he likes to create streaking as a part of the chipping stage. I think that really doesn't matter too much. Well, again, it depends. You might decide to use pre-dusting, so apply some basic patterns of dust with an airbrush and then refine it either with acrylics or enamels or oils, although I don't really like using oils for uh, dust or mud effects. They kind of, they blend too perfectly for that. Yeah, another thing which I find really important is even when you decide to make a really muddy tank, like wet mud all around, I, I think it's always good to start with a dry layer of mud, no matter the circumstances, because... It's sort of it, this layered uh, approach kind of makes it look more not not only interesting but also more believable or how to put it authentic, yeah, more more natural. Yeah, yeah, even if it's not realistic, you know, because there there might be a chance when a completely clean tank just went out. It's raining and it's just getting splashed with wet mud. There's no dust or dry mud layer underneath, but it just. It kind of just looks better that way. Would you describe your um, the way that you approach weathering as you've got, um, I think John Bias calls it a playbook that you follow for the most part, maybe not 100%, or would you consider the skills and techniques that you do almost like items on a menu and you apply those items depending on the project as far as it relates to the order that you do them and the effects that you want yeah pretty much it's like a checklist which i follow of course it depends uh some techniques can be used more on a certain subject 
for example, oil stains, if if you have lots of visible this oil this oil cap um, covers on a tank, you can go pretty wild with oil and fuel stains. On other models, not so much. If, for example, you know they had to open an engine hatch in order to refuel the tank, then your options are kind of limited. So you don't need you don't even need to use this technique at all. But pretty much, it's always the same. When it gets that little variation that I try, at least try to employ, is in the initial stages. So different painting techniques. So one time I'm going to use, let's say, distressing, then post-shading. The next time it's going to be just a plain paint job without any anything special. Instead, I'm going to try to catch up with oil paints and all of these brush applied effects. So yeah, and I mean, in the end, if something doesn't make make you happy, like if you don't enjoy chipping, then just don't do it. You know, the model is going to look good even without it. And that pretty much applies to any technique. Really, pretty much the only must-do technique in my book is a pin wash. That's like the most basic yeah. and one of the most one of the most powerful techniques out there. Now, you're not much of a fan of the hairspray technique, right? You prefer to paint most of your distressed paint and chips, right? Uh-huh, yeah. And it's funny because I, I was a huge fan of hairspray chipping. Well, now it's going to be... Now it's going to be almost a decade ago, maybe even more. Yeah, when Mike Rinaldi sort of became famous here in Slovakia, when some of his articles were published here, I kind of jumped on the bandwagon and tried to learn his style and approach. Yeah, back then I was really into hairspray chipping and I could chip any model with hairspray. But the thing is, it's no matter how good you are with hairspray, it's always going to be somewhat unpredictable. And that's something I don't really uh, appreciate with with any technique. If it's unpredictable, I'd rather avoid it nowadays. That's also the reason why I don't use pigments. Yeah, pigments are tough. Yeah, they're... I can never feel like I get those right. Yeah. And it's funny because there were all the rage uh, in like late 2000s when there were a new product. And I can see why, because, you know, before that, we had just some regular enamel paints, oil paints, which might dry into a glossy finish, and the result would be just horrible. And suddenly you had this magic powder, which you could just literally just sprinkle it on the model, and it would look good. But, you know, techniques have sort of evolved over time. The new products uh, were introduced For example, I can remember trying enamel dust products for the first time. I just couldn't get them, not even to to get them look right. I I didn't even know how to use them because what was the first thing you you thought if you you opened up uh, an enamel bottle? You would use it as a wash. I started using these uh, dust tones, enamel dust tones as a wash, and it just looked horrible. It was just a dust-colored wash, and that's it. No uh, subtle layer of dust like with pigments. So all of these pro- different products, they get some, you know, they need some time getting used to. But on the other hand, I think everyone, even pigments, even if I don't like them, they have their place on the market and in our hobby, in our modeling. So as they say to each their own. I think that sometimes a pigment, uh, an application of pigment can really give you some nice texture 
if you need some body, you know, some dry body on things, but you know, it's, it's really tough getting them locked down without, you know, changing them, without wetting them too much, you know, securing them to the model without. Yeah. They're very turning them into paint. They're very fragile as well. So, and even for this, there are products that do the same job or even do it better. Like you, we, now we have enamel dust tones, which are not just in earth colored enamel paint and that's it. But they also have this really fine texture to them. So it actually looks like an in-scale dust, you know, and also all the different acrylic mud pastes. So texture and volume is not an issue anymore. We also have gravel fixer, which is something I was, I really wanted in the past because there was no way to use pigments to simulate loose, you know, dirt on a model. No matter what, what you might try, it just wouldn't look the same. Now we have gravel and sand fixer and we can use either fine dust or real dirt from the garden. So yeah, we we just have so many products out there. Yes, definitely a golden age. I mean, we talked that, about that a little bit earlier. Yeah. I mean, about how not only is the hobby not dying, but you look at not just the kits that are available, but the number of finishing products that are available. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of people get upset like, this weathering uh, market is getting out of hand. Everything comes pre-made, ready to use. Where are the golden ages back in my day when we were, you know, mixing oil paints for everything? I can see where they're, where they're coming from with this. And some products, yeah, they're getting a little ridiculous, you know. Right now, I can't really think of any specific ones. So my argument is not really valid it's just an opinion <laughs> but yeah you, you know sometimes you see a product and you you think yeah this is a must-have like this is gonna make my life better and the others eh, you know i don't really need them I, I already what i have works good enough so these are the products i'm talking about you mentioned um instagram are you active on no, instagram i'm not i completely <laughs> abandoned my account yeah, I know it, it might look really bad uh, because the timing was the worst possible. It was last year uh, when I posted the Shell Impact video and I posted a teaser and a photo of that shot up tiger, which I never finished. And some and a lot of people were commenting like, okay, this is too much. This is not a realistic. And I posted a reference picture for that particular tiger. Like, see guys... It is possible. And I actually copied all all the impacts to almost to a T. And then I just disappeared. <laughs> and it, it wasn't because I, I got I got, you know, my fragile ego got hurt or anything by even the smallest criticism. I mean criticism is 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 necessary, especially when it's well meant. It was just it was just getting too much, like operating on three different platforms, so YouTube, Patreon, and Instagram. It was just too much, you know. I decided to rather stop posting than start ignoring people because if someone takes their time to say something nice, it's kind of, at least for me, it feels kind of rude to just in- ignore them, you know. Like set up an Instagram account where you're just going to post pictures and not care for about anyone. That's kind of, I don't like that idea. So I just abandoned it completely. Yeah, I would say as 
uh, obviously I don't have hundreds of thousands of followers like you do, but I, I'm a pretty regular user of Instagram. Mm -hmm. um, I don't engage a whole lot because I don't have anyone to engage with, but just as a place to go to find talented artists mm -hmm. and especially, you know, in, in the hobby, I found it to be one of the better places to go. There, there is so many talented people that have Instagram accounts that I I can spend all day just scrolling through everyone and seeing their photos. And it's definitely better than Facebook or Pinterest or yes. whatever. Oh, even, it, yes, even, it's better than both. Even of those. if you are some uh, upcoming social media hype beast or whatever, then start with Instagram. It it has a much better engine or algorithm algorithm if you want to grow fast. Like hashtags, they are just amazing. For the six people out there that uh, don't know how to get to your YouTube channel, uh, how do how does somebody find your YouTube channel? I don't know. I actually never searched for myself before. <laughs> <laughs> I don't well, know. Everybody, night, I, night shift and I some modeling word or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a YouTube slash night shift, and it's two words, right? Night shift. Oh, well, if you're looking for a URL, it's actually something like youtube.com slash you as in user slash night shift scale models, I think. Yeah, because you can create your custom URL if you there pass, you if you pass yeah. like 100 subscribers or whatever. And you can choose something more appealing than just a random bunch of numbers and letters. Sadly, when I was creating it, I didn't know that I would come by as Uncle Night Shifts. I would definitely use that. But yeah, it's night. I think it's Night Shift Skill Models or Skill Modeler. I, I don't know. Something along those lines. I think the best place for people to interact with you, based on my experience, has been your Patreon account. Um, if you uh, go to your Patreon account, then you post you know lots of additional content, let you talk about that for a minute. Yeah, well, but I mean, that, sounds that doesn't sound really good like hey you want to talk to me you need to pay first <laughs> oh my god that sounds so horrible when i said, said it aloud <laughs> thank goodness for editing <laughs> no you can you can you can leave it you can leave it uh, because no it's it's not completely true but at the same time it kind of is because i mean even on youtube i try to interact with people all the time and i you know when i was beginning i replied to every single comment that i had even the negative ones nowadays i'm at least trying to be there for at least half an hour after i upload uh, after i uplo upload a video sometimes it's even longer like one hour it also depends on how well the video is doing obviously imagine it's quite encouraging to reply and communicate with people interact when the video is doing really well and when it's totally bombing you just want to get as far away from the computer as possible so <laughs> i think i think people will understand that yeah but yeah for sure but yeah if if we are talking like in depth uh whatever uh communication on any level it's definitely patreon because even even if Anyone joins for the lowest $1 tier, uh, even then, it's always my number one priority to always uh, reply and interact with people who are basically like 
I don't know, well, you know, supporters or clients or how to put it. And yeah, I mean, the extra content that's being posted there all the time, it's like a cherry on top or how should I put it? Because, you know, some people, they they set up a Patreon account just for the sake of supporting. Like there are people who just want to, you know, uh, I don't know what's the word, who just want to support someone without expecting anything in return. And, yeah, patrons. Yeah, yeah, and that's understandable and completely okay. I always, since I started it, I knew it it will be it would be about extra content all the time because weekly videos, uh, it might be not enough content for someone. So, yeah, Patreon is there to fix that. And even though there are no extra videos there, like there were people, there were some people who left uh, with a bad taste in their mouth. Uh, leaving me a note like I was expecting more tutorials and more videos but again it's just one person behind all of that so yeah basically it's like a magazine subscription that or Patreon page and a lot of other people are also using this format and I think it's the best way to operate if you're not just a scale modeler but any sort of creative person I don't want to say an artist because that artists are other people who make paintings and sculptures <laughs> well I, th- I i think that you've got a, an awful lot of content uh, just from speaking for myself i i really enjoy all the additional things that you can get um outside of your channel and uh i really enjoy it i think it's a good value right i mean when when i was i went up, when i'm accessing patreon on my on my laptop it starts just it starts overheating when i'm just replying to comments like when it loads all these photos that are there it just it's 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 too much for the for the small computer and i guess it's not well optimized the whole page is not well optimized that's that's the reason but yeah i mean there's there's a lot of it and even if if i tried uh, searching back uh, a year ago is actually it's gonna be one year on the twenty second of this month. It'll be one year anniversary since I started the Patreon page. Uh, I should wow. do something, uh, something special. Yeah. But again, time is the yeah. worst enemy. <laughs> you know, we uh, we asked you to join us for thirty to sixty minutes, and we're at about ninety minutes plus. Yeah, now, I Martin, think so I feel like you've gotten you so much. <laughs> a lot more than you asked for. Yes, we did. A terrific interview. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, talking weathering and a little bit about you and your your channel and your approaches to modeling. It's been a lot of fun. Open invitation for you to come back and join the posse at any time. And hopefully we haven't uh, made you sweat too bad today. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. And also, I kind of forgot to say this usual disclaimer of mine at the beginning. A lot of people probably already figured out that I'm not a native speaker. So I apologize for some awkward breaks or pronunciation or whatever, especially if I said some thing that was really awkward or uh god forbid uh 
not polite or rude. It it wasn't intentional. It just because I don't understand the language on the sub subatomic level. So. <laughs> subatomic. <laughs> yep. No, I mean, I you speak English really, really well. Um, it was a lot of fun getting to know you, getting to know about your modeling, like I said, and your. Uh, your venomous hatred towards pineapple pizza as well, uh, which uh, we share for the most part, it sounds like. So uh, thanks a lot. Really, really appreciate it, Mark. Welcome back. I hope everyone enjoyed that fantastic interview with Martin. He is an awesome dude, a very talented scale modeler, as you all know. And we were very fortunate to have him join us all the way from Slovakia. Become a member of the Posse. We will share feedback on our episode, and who knows, you might end up on a future podcast with us. We want to hear from listeners what you like, questions for the other Posse members, suggestions, whatever you think is cool. You can leave your feedback at our Facebook page, which is the Plastic Posse Podcast. Or email us at plasticpossypodcast at gmail.com. You know, drop us a line. We always like to hear from our listeners. And one more reminder to visit the other fine quality scale modding po- modeling podcasts. Namely, On the Bench with Dave, Ian, Julian. They talk funny. They drive on the wrong side of the road, but they're great guys and excellent modelers. Give them a listen. Uh, the Plastic Model Mojo. Find out what they're drinking and listen to uh, Kentucky Dave talk about the shelf of doom. Uh, the Scale Model Podcast, Stuart and Friends up in Canada. They're always doing something new, and we love to hear from them. Speaking of the Scale Model Podcast, we've got a short little ad from our sponsor, Goodman Models. So, Anthony, take it away. Hey, this is Anthony from Goodman Models. You're listening to the Plastic Posse Podcast. This is the podcast for miniatures, Star Wars, science fiction models, and everything in between. And while you're listening in... Working on your models, pick up a set of super sanding blocks, tools that will help you sand with precision. Check them out at GoodmanModels.com and keep the glue to your sprue. All right. Thanks for that, Anthony. That's a great ad. Uh, uh, Make sure you guys uh, go over to GoodmanModels.com. Check out those super sanding blocks. I've got a set coming for uh, myself to add to my bench. I'm excited about that. Uh, Just to wrap up, hopefully you'll take a little bit of time again to rate us, leave a review where you listen to podcasts. Again, those five-star reviews really, really help us. Well, uh, next time we'll get back to the uh, inspiration episode like we promised you. We we were just so excited to get this interview done and out there for you. Uh, It was a lot of fun doing that. So Doug, TJ, thanks again as always, and uh, we'll see you again in two weeks. All right. Take it easy, guys. Yeah, take care. (laughs) 